You are listening to the San Antonio Zen Center Dharma Talks. The San Antonio Zen Center is supported solely by donation, so that everyone can participate in our offerings and programs, regardless of income. If you are able, please consider making a donation to SAZC through the donation button on our site, sanantoniozen.org, or by visiting paypal.me slash sanantoniozen. Thank you for your practice and enjoy the talk. Good morning. Good morning. So before I begin the formal talk, I just for folks who um, don't know the rope chant, it's in this um, little booklet. So whenever you come on come on Sunday mornings. Saturday mornings, um, they're on that little table right outside where the Avalokiteshvara statue is. And you can just bring one in with you. And whenever we do the rope chant, you'll have it, you'll have it right there. So there was a craftsman, actually he was an architect first, uh, <clears throat> and then uh, he's Japanese-American, and when he was interned during the Second World War, apprenticed to a Japanese uh, carpenter, and he learned woodworking, and then what he's most well-known for is furniture making. His name was George Nakashima. Um, Japanese-American. Uh, even though he was born in the States, he got locked up with the rest of those that did not look white. It looked like they came from Asia uh, or had a Japanese name. That's all it took in a lot of cases. Um, so he, had, he wrote this really wonderful book called The Soul of a Tree. I don't know if anyone has, do, do you know his, his name? I do. Um, and he really had a lot of affinity with trees. I mean, the love, real love for trees. Uh, both when they were living and when, after they uh, died, and he would, and he would uh, make furniture. He loved the way that they expressed themselves when they were alive. And, and what was most important to him uh, was finding an honorable way to express the tree after it was dead in terms of furniture. And if, if you, I don't know how many of you have seen his furniture, but it's really kind of breathtaking. Because, particularly with his cadence, there was never any doubt about what it used to be. It used to be a tree. And he only ever worked with real wood, never veneers. So it was, it was really important to honor the tree by working with the tree. And so, how he did this was he always took the long view of the tree of the tree's life when it was alive and 
for people that were going to use the furniture for years afterwards. And, um, and one of my readings, and I've not been able to find it again, was that, um, so he eventually settled in New Hope, Pennsylvania, and had a small woodlot there. Uh, but if he was driving around, if he were driving around and saw a tree that he liked, he would buy the rights to the tree and then just wait. <laughs> it wasn't, he wouldn't go and cut it down just so he could use it. He wanted the tree to completely express itself. And it wasn't until uh, it was dying, it was, it was his last gasps that he would fell a tree. And even then, he would dig out the roots because for him, that was particularly redwood trees, even though there are no redwoods in, in uh, Pennsylvania, whenever he got all the redwoods, he always said that the root system would be really amazing furniture. So he was always really uh, interested in the roots and how they express themselves. So he would cut, he would cut the tree, bring it to the yard, and he would paint the ends with whatever paint they had left over, the cuts, uh, or any scars, and that's to prevent checking. So if it dries out too quick, quickly, the wood just splinters. And you'll see this in Japanese houses with the uh, Japanese architecture where the frames are painted, not the frames, the rafters. The exposed rafters are painted to prevent checking to keep it from splitting. So it would sit in the yard and dry on its own for years. And then he would take it in and, uh, and the sawyer would mill the wood and then they would stack it in what he called bull corn, like the bread. Right, so basically he kept the tree together and he had slats in between to let it air dry. And then it would sit for another two to five years to finish drying. And then after that, he would put it in the kiln for up to two weeks to completely dry the wood out. So he never thought of right now. He, whenever he thought of right now, it was in, in relation to the piece that he was working with right now. And uh, it took a long time to make furniture using his methods for a tree to make its way into furniture. So he was uh, both an artist and a, and a craftsman. Uh, he, was, he was one of the main figures, if I remember reading this correctly, uh, in the revival of the craftsman movement in the 20th century. So he was very, very important, even though he's not terribly well known. He was very, very important and influenced a lot of people. So, our practice is like this. So for a long time we're green. When we first come to sit, we're, we're really green wood. It takes a long time to season and to be ready. At, at Tassahar, at the monastery, I practice with that at the woodsheds. There is two separate sections. 
the stuff that's seasoned and ready to burn, and then there's the stuff that is too green to burn. And it actually has a sign. So it's kind of like when we first come to practice, we should just have a sign that says <laughs> too green, too green to burn. Because this is and we wear it for kind of wear this sign for a number of years because it takes a while to to become a craftsperson at this task that we're doing. We will never be masters. I don't think Mr. Nakashima ever considered himself a master, although many people did. His purpose was to express the love of the tree through his work. And so when we sit, we express our, the love of our life, the love of practice through sitting. We, you know, it's kind of a clumsy metaphor because it's not so helpful to to sit zazen and say, you know, to green to burn. It takes us away from the practice of settling into our lives. It takes us away from coming back to the breath, coming back to the body. So when a, when a, a log is sitting there logs and thinking, I'm getting seasoned. <clears throat> log is just log, just as we are just sitting. We are drooling, we are Gerald, we are Nicole in this moment. No matter what we do, whenever we are present, that is a thorough expression of our life. And what our practice asks us to do is to let go of these far-off ideas about transformation or enlightenment or whatever we think practice is. Even. Instead, just to come back and be present. And it takes a while. Uh, Shantideva calls it heroic perseverance. A student once asked Pema Chodron, how long should I sit before I know if practice is for me? She's, she thought for me, she said, about 10 years. About 10 years. My feelings is closer to three. Three, we have a really a pretty solid idea if, if, uh, if the practice is changing our lives, if we are being transformed by practice. Because it takes a while. It takes a while for so much of the suffering that we've walked in through the door with to begin to abate, to begin to settle down and to be transformed by the process of sitting. Some of you have heard me say before that uh, Joko Beck refers to these changes as happening on a cellular level. So it's, it's very subtle. It's a very subtle practice of transformation. And the funny thing is, is that we can't know the transformation. Right? If we can know the transformation, it's not, the tra it's not transformation. 
wouldn't be transformation. It, it would just be in accordance with the deluded ideas that we already have about our lives, or our deluded ideas about what we think enlightenment or awakening is. So rather than just uh, sitting, you know, we can really kind of get in the way of ourselves. And <clears throat> we do not actively transform, but we are trans but we are transformed. We are transformed by sitting. terms of taking the long view, and again, coming back to the present moment is taking the long view. That's giving up an idea of getting something or even awakening, because these are just ideas. So it's the willingness to let go of these ideas so that we can sit and be present. Because otherwise, uh, we're just, we have a horse on top of a horse, so to speak. So it's, it's, so taking the long view is to, is having a willingness to accept that our life is going to change in unforeseen ways. Which is going to happen anyway whether or not we are practicing. Uh, how many of us, when we were young, when we were 15, thought we would be sitting in a sense and looking at a wall? Probably very few of us. Probably very few of us. It's an unforeseen, it's an unforeseen occurrence that we end up coming and sitting. This is why we can't know what the transformation would look like. Because if we can, if we say, oh, I'm going to change in such and such a way in the future, then it would not be transformation. There would be no change occurring. Understand? It's just, it's, we're just, uh, at that point, we're going to try to make everything fit into our version of transformation. So we're, actually committing an act of violence on the rest of the world, saying, no, 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 Gerald, you're stage right, not stage left. You're supposed to be over here at this certain period of time. So, so, we're, so we don't uh, get so involved in trying to control and orchestrate our world. It wouldn't be very kind to Gerald, right, if I said, no, stage right, stage right. Gerald may say, I can't hear from stage right. I need to be able to hear. I can't see very well from stage right. One of the things Mr. Nakashima talks about in his book was just the sense of wonder that he would have looking at a stump or a log because he 
never knew for sure what was inside, what it was going to look like inside. He might have an idea just based on his experience. You can see a completely beautiful piece of wood and cut it and cut it open and find it's rotted on the inside and it's not good for what he had hoped. Or in one case, he talked about being very excited that the customer uh, donated, gave him a big stump. He was so excited. It sat in the yard for years. And when they came around to cut it open, they found that this massive uh, trunk was full of concrete. That the inside had rotted out, and they poured concrete in, in an effort to keep it alive. And then the, the outer two or three feet of the wood were completely useless. So all this time, he finds out, uh, well, so much for the expectations. But it's not until um, the wood is milled that they can begin saying, oh, this might be good for a coffee table. This might be good for chairs, dining room table, something along those lines. Uh, he would never look at the exterior of it and decide what it was going to be used for. He would wait until the wood had been milled. And so there are, there are uh, if you look at his work, uh, you'll see that he uses oh, these planks, these, uh, this wood that has weak spots in it. And what he does is he, uh, what he did was cut, um, he, calls them, he called them keys, but they were shaped like a bow tie. And he would chisel out a weak spot, place this key in, and then smooth it over to strengthen that weak spot in the wood, as long as it wasn't fatal, a fatal weak spot. And so the patches become an amazing part of the furniture itself, whatever he was, whatever he was making. And this is often what this is what happens when we practice for a long time. Is yeah, you know, got put on these foibles, you know, I've got a temper, uh, or I've got control issues or something along those lines. But we are aware of where those weak spots are so that we can address them. And just like the table, it's always going to be weak. Even with the key in it, it's still going to be it's still going to be weak. So we're always going to have these foibles. <clears throat> and uh, by taking our time, taking the long view, really get to know the ins and outs of these foibles, of these areas where we, where we need effort. Sometimes things resolve themselves, and they settle of their own accord, and sometimes, yeah, we're stuck with them. You know. And that's actually not, um, it's not a bad thing. As the old saying goes, the, the devil you know is better than the one that you don't. So it's really helpful, you know, to, to know.
on to be aware of these things so that we, if we have a temper, if we are around people, to take care of that so we don't just hose people down with it. Or if we're trying to control something, we say, oh, there I go again. Sorry. Sorry. We apologize a lot. Most have been practicing a lot. self and others, to self and others. So what all of this does, taking the long views, kind of helps us let go of our expectations of ourselves and our expectations of others. And what develops intuitively is a sense of ease. Being able to ease into our lives so that we can so that we can meet each other, so that we can see each other, be present with each other. Not in any special way, but in a very ordinary way. Seeing what is needed and being present for close with a poem that some of you may have heard before. It's by Jane Hirschfield. And it's called Tree. She says, it is foolish to let a young redwood grow next to a house. Even in this one lifetime, you will have to choose. That great calm being, this clutter of soup pots, books. Already, the first branch tips brush at the window, softly, calmly, immensely cats at your life. Any thoughts or questions? Somebody, if somebody knows where the line is about Mr. Nakashima buying the rights to the trees, I wish I, I wish I could find this so I can, so I can say 100% that's what it was. <laughs>